All right. Take your Bibles and make your way back to Mark's Gospel. We took a one-week reprieve, and we're going to be in chapter 9 <clears throat> this week. We finished, we finished up um, chapter 8, and now we're going to get into chapter 9. There is an unfortunate chapter break here, because really, chapter 9, verse 1 belongs in chapter 8. It's still the same sermon. Um, it's, it's the same call to take up your cross and follow me. And it's kind of the conclusion, at least of what Mark shares with us through Peter, of that sermon. And then it takes us and, and unpacks all of it. So let's begin in verse nine, uh, 1. And he, Jesus, said to them, again, at the, at, at the end of this call to take up your cross die to yourself and follow me. Um, he says this, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared with them, to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6 because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. I bet they were. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. All right, so this is uh, the account, the strange account, if you will, of the transfiguration of Jesus. We'll talk in a moment about what that means, but I've entitled this sermon, The Voice of Ignorance. Probably shouldn't have, because we're going to actually look at three voices today. We're going to look at the voice of invitation, and then the voice of ignorance, and then the voice of instruction. So one of my points garners the title of the sermon today, but we've been focusing on uh, the, dis the disciples, I think Mark does, in, in, this, in this narrative of Jesus' life. So have you ever been so shocked that you didn't know what to say? Like, what do they call it, being at a loss for words? Um, and Peter was here. 
but he came up with something to say anyhow. I don't really think that's a good idea. Uh, but Mark's purpose, don't miss this, Mark's, Mark's whole purpose in his history is that we might come ourselves to the conclusion of Mark 1.1. And if you recall, it says this, the beginning of the good news about King Jesus, the Son of God, right? His whole goal as he writes to these Roman believers, mostly Gentiles, is for them to understand the identity of Jesus and that they would accept him as their king and as their God. That's his goal. And that's where he wants us to get to as well. The crowd that followed Jesus, the committed, those disciples, and even the calloused Pharisees and Sadducees would all come to different conclusions at different times as to exactly who Jesus was. There are many voices in the marketplace of ideas today about just who Jesus is. And the voice you choose to listen to and follow has eternal consequences. And may we never forget that. So let's begin today as we look first of all at the voice of invitation in verses 1 and 2. The voice of invitation. Here is Jesus First of all, he's making a big statement in verse number one. Remember, this is the conclusion of his hard call to the crowd, to the committed, and also to the callous who would not receive it. They're not going to answer it. But he said, hey, you, you, you think you want to follow me? You think you want to be my disciple? Well, here's what you have to do. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it, right? And then follow me. This is a losing proposition on this side of the ledger. But in eternity, it's a gain. So at the end of that, he says these words, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, I wanted you to see those words today. I think they're on this. They're, there you go. He wanted, he wanted them to understand that this is really a prophecy. So he's, he's telling them, some of you standing, now notice he didn't say all of you. He said some, right? And, and Emma, I know Emma's got a final examination tomorrow in her logic, all of her subjects actually. And uh, one of the things we learn in logic in the square of opposition is A, E, I, and O, and the I represents some S, R, P. Some things are, it's a subset of the all. So the all is everybody there. The subset is some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God present with power. So here's the prophecy. Now look at the next verse too. Now after how many days, the Bible says? Six days. By the way, Mark is not a big one for details, especially calendar details. They, they say this is the only time before you get to uh, the crucifixion of Christ that Mark gets really specific. This is the most specific calendar-wise that Mark has gotten yet in his narrative. And he wants people to understand this is six days later. Six days later, now here's the some of you, right, that are standing there. Jesus took three guys, and who are they? Peter, 
James and John. Two of those guys are brothers. Anyone know who those brothers are? James and John. Yep. James is older, and we know that John is very much younger. He's the, he's the baby of the disciples. Probably most likely just a teenager yet. Um, so we see this three, these three are set aside in this voice of invitation. And that's, that's letter A, and it is the people. The people. We see this Peter, James, and John. Why not everybody? Why not all the disciples? Peter, James, and John were kind of Jesus' inner circle. If you recall, they were the only ones present in the room with Jesus when he resurrected Jairus' daughter. Remember that? He brought Peter, James, and John in. And here, he, he, under the people, he brings, the, he brings these three men again six days later. And the, and the Bible tells us that he, that he takes them, led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves. So that's letter B is the place. A high mountain. Um, and mountains are significant in the Bible. They really are. What are some significant mountains that come to your mind as you rehearse your knowledge of Scripture? What are some mountains that you think of in the Bible? Mount Ararat and what, what landed there? Noah's Ark, and it's still there. All right, what's another mountain that you think of? Sinai. What happened there? Moses got the law, right? The Ten Commandments. That's a, that's a big deal. Any other mountains come to mind? What's that? Okay, Horeb, Mount Horeb. I was thinking of Mount Moriah where God shows up to Abraham as he's sacrificing Isaac, right? That's, that's an important mountain. We talked about Sinai where God gives the law to Moses. Oh, how about this one? What happened on Mount Carmel and with who? Remember Mount Carmel? The, what prophet was that? Starts with an E? Elijah, right? He has the big showdown with the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, Mount Horeb was a place that God ministered peace to the troubled heart of Elijah. What about Mount Calvary? Amen. Just outside of the gates of Jerusalem where Christ dies for our sins. The Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended back into his heavenly glory. And that's the same mountain that he will greet, that will greet his feet when he returns in glory. Um, we don't really know which mountain uh, this refers to, but we do know that when Jesus is given this call to follow him, that he is in Caesarea Philippi. And uh, my son Paul and I were talking about this. Um, the mountain just north of there, 15 miles north of Caesarea Philippi. What mountain is that, Paul? Mount Hermon. And a lot of, historically, a lot of things have happened on Mount Hermon. It says a high mountain. There is another mountain south of there, but it's only 2,000 feet above sea level. Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. So, so that's a pretty good climb. When it says he took them up on a high mountain, led them up there, that, that was quite a hike, I should imagine. Um, Let's look at letter C is the purpose. This is verses, the end of verse 2. 
and verse 3. So he gets them up in this high mountain by themselves, Peter, James, and John. They climb that 9,000 feet above sea level. And now um, the Bible just says these words, and he was transfigured before them. Then it describes what transfigured means. And we see it here. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, take the, take the Bible glasses off for a minute. He gets these three fellas. I'm sure they've forgotten what he said six days earlier about some of you here will see the kingdom of God coming in, in its power. I'm, I'm sure that's not in their mind. Jesus just said, hey, you three come with me. And we're, apparently we're going mountain climbing. So they climb this mountain, they get up there, Jesus turns around, and wh whatever this transfiguration is happens right before them. No warning. It doesn't appear here at all that Jesus tells them anything. But all of a sudden, I want you to picture it, and, and Peter is describing this to Mark. And, and how he describes it is basically Jesus starts glowing. Like, he just starts shining, brighter than the sun. Can you imagine? And he says, and white, pure white light. What is that? Well, that word transfigured is where we get the word metamorphosis from, where the caterpillar bec becomes a butterfly. This was Jesus revealing his true nature. This is Jesus who had up to now concealed his nature as the second person of the Trinity. And it's here that Jesus reveals to his men the nature that they only observe through his actions, but never physically and visually. Now they get to see it. Now again, I want you to take the Bible glasses off. Peter, James, and John, what are they thinking? Like, I mean, this is, this is quite a sight. This transfiguration is, is a massive, overwhelming vision for your mind to take in. Have you ever, have you ever, of course, we've never experienced anything like that. But have you ever looked at something and you, could, you, you couldn't, it didn't fit in your brain? Um, and I've said this recently, so I don't want to rehash the story. But when we went to see the Grand Canyon, how many of you have seen the Grand Canyon? Uh, we got there late at night, and uh, I remember Paul had to, I guess you were, must, you were 18, had your driver's license. I couldn't drive anymore. I was unsafe driving. I had driven all night long through the mountains and the passes of Colorado and all of the suicidal deer and elk, I'm not lying, were literally on the side of the road the whole night playing chicken with me. And it was exhausting driving, terrifying. And uh, finally, we, I pulled over to get some gas, and I said, I'm not safe to drive anymore. And uh, I don't know what the deal is, but my, my poor wife, whenever she gets in the car, it's like taking Salmonex to her. She's just out like a light. So she, she can't do it. And Paul said, I can drive. I said, good. So he, he got in the driver's seat, and, and we, we were driving. We made it to the gate of um, the entrance to the Grand Canyon. And I figured, well, you know, we'll just pull in, and it's right there. It's not. It's a, Paul, how long was a drive the road to, once you get in the gate? It's at least 30 minutes, wasn't it? At least, long way. And I think it's 3.30 in the morning. It's super early, it's black, dark. And uh, he's doing a great job. And 
Um, I remember telling them, I know you're going to speed limit, but go slower. I said, I just, you know, there's, there's deer and elk everywhere. And so he did. He slowed down. As we came around the corner, here is literally a whole herd of elk. They're not crossing the road. I guess they're just having a convention in the road. And he speeds up. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I want to get closer and see that. <laughs> I'm like, well, let's not hit them. Right? So anyway, we, we finally, after a solid 30 minutes or so, maybe longer, get into the observation area, big parking lot. Of course, no vehicles whatsoever there except ours at 3.30 in the morning. And it's dark. I'm talking black dark. There's no moon that night. Nothing. It's super dark. And so I think the three adults got out. We were so responsible. We left the younger children in the van by themselves. <laughs> I think we cracked the window and locked the doors. And uh, we, we walked over to the viewing area, which was really, I don't know why we did that, because you can't see anything. I mean, it is black as coal. But we're standing there at the rail. Can't see a thing. Probably a bad idea, actually. Be walking, walking next to a giant pit in the dark. But we did. We weren't thinking straight, obviously. But I remember standing there. Can't see it. But you can sense it. It's the weirdest thing. You can feel with some type of other sense, other than your eyeballs, that there is something massive right in front of you. Now, again, I was sleep deprived and not in my right mind. Uh... And as I stood there, the first fingers of light, probably about 45 minutes, the first fingers of light started to, not sunlight, but just light itself. About 30 minutes before dawn, light starts to happen. It's really a wonderful time. I know some of you teenagers have never seen that time, don't realize there really is a time just before light. Um, but you, those of you that have, have hunted before or been up early, you know what I'm talking about. Just the first cracks of light started to come into that canyon. And it, and it happens slowly, but over the next 10 or 15 minutes, more and more you can see what's in front of you. And I, I distinctly remember, um, I was overwhelmed. Like my, I think part of it was being tired, but I couldn't, my brain couldn't take it in. And I literally, I'm sitting there holding on to the rail, feeling like I'm going to pass out because it's too, it's too much for my mind to assimilate. I couldn't do it. I, had, I actually had to sit on the sidewalk. I had to sit down on the sidewalk because it was totally the size of it and the depth of it and the glory of that canyon was with the, with the morning light was overwhelming. That's what Peter and James and John are feeling here times a thousand, I'm sure. Can you imagine? You've walked with this guy. You went fishing with this guy. You've done life with this guy for nearly three years now. And all of a sudden, you are seeing who he really is. Listen to me. For the first time. Now, they saw reflections of that, but they never saw the glory that was true. They never saw the kingdom coming in power, who Jesus really was yet. And Jesus gives them this quick glimpse into who he is. And I'm going to say more about why God, why the purpose of this actually in my conclusion in a few minutes. But, but let me just say it here. What is Mark's whole goal? Is it in his, in his writing of this narrative to these Roman Christians? 
that they might know and be convinced of who Jesus is. That he is the king and the son of God. Right? So think about this purpose. These three men, only three of the twelve, but these three men were given a confirmation as, the tr as to the true identity of who Jesus was in this, in this amazing transforming sight. We see in John's gospel, John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was, was God. If you go down a little bit further to verse 14, it says, um, the law came by Moses, but then John says, but grace and truth came by who? Jesus Christ, right? So we, we see this here. They, uh, they're, they're, they're being confirmed as to the real identity of Jesus. He's not even just the Messiah. He's something more than that. And let me tell you something. When God reveals to you that depth of his identity, you're going to need it. Are these guys going to need to hang on to that here in a, few, in a few months? You better believe it. You better believe it. And, and what about the others that weren't there? They're going to hang on to Peter's testimony and James and John's testimony, right? Hey, guys, let me tell you what we saw. Let me tell you what we saw. And then this other weird thing happens in verse number four, and I just called this one the perspective. Some people show up out of the blue. Look at verse four. And as they look, Elijah appeared with them, to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, the Bible tells us in, in Luke, they were actually praying with Jesus, and they were talking specifically about Jesus' death, his impending death. Isn't that something? And I wondered this. I, I look at this, now again, I try to look at it with my Sunday school glasses off, but how did Peter, James, and John know that that was Elijah and Moses? I don't know. But they knew. Well, we know a little bit about Elijah, how he dressed, which is why they thought John the Baptist was Elijah, because he dressed the same way. He, he dressed just like Elijah on purpose, actually. Um, so maybe it was what Elijah was wearing. I don't know about Moses, how they figured that one out. Um, but there's a lot of significance here. Mark says that they were talking with him. And Luke tells us that they were discussing his impending death on the cross. Um, well, why, why Moses and why Elijah and not, I don't know, David and Jeremiah? What's that? You better believe it. Think about that. Who got the law? Moses. Who is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? Elijah. Literally here, now don't, don't miss it, you have the representations. Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. What did a good Jew hear when he heard the law and the prophets? What did he consider that to be? The entire Old Testament. That was a euphemism for the Bible of their day. They did not have the New Testament yet. Right? Literally, they're seeing the old covenant, the old agreement, the old contract with God and men. Although it wasn't old yet because it was still in effect. Do you see it? They're seeing the law and the prophets Literally, as they look, these men have come to represent the word of God that spoke of the coming of the word of God. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus himself. They're representing the word of God, being present, recognizing that the word of God, the logos of God, Jesus himself, has come. 
It's like the Old Testament nodding and, tr and handing off the baton to the new. And all of that was going to be found in one person and one person only, and that's Jesus. Um, and these men also have come to encourage Jesus himself as he draws closer to Calvary. I, can't, I would love to have been a, up there. I, I, I just can only imagine what that conversation was like. It must have been something. Um, by the way, these two men also represent the two ways that the people of God meet death. Right? Because we know what happened to Moses. He what? He got to the top of the mountain and he dies up there, right? He gets to look into the promised land, but he never gets to go. Right? But what about Elijah? Does he die? No, he's taken up in this chariot of fire with these horses, right? He, he's... He's taken out, taken up and taken out. Well, we're the same way. We're either going to die like Moses and be in the presence of God, or we're going to be taken up like Elijah at the return of Christ. But either way, these two men represent how we go to be with the Lord as Christians. I just think that's interesting. And I do also, I'm encouraged by this, that Moses is there. Because remember... He is not allowed to step foot in the promised land because of his sin of striking a rock the second time. Right? But here he is. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Moses to finally be able to feel the feet, the, the dirt of the promised land under his feet? To actually be there finally. Um, Moses had definitely been punished in time but he was free in eternity. Isn't that a great truth for us today? God is so faithful. And this scene is amazing. Here's Moses and, and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus really about what's going to happen. And Peter's there, and James and John's like, wow. So then we have, so that's the voice of invitation. And now we have the voice of ignorance. <laughs> Verse 5 and 6. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, and I imagine Jesus and Elijah, they're having this conversation and Peter kind of butts in. Anybody shocked by that? Um, he apparently doesn't know the interrupt rule that we teach our kids, but he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Uh, I can still hear mom's voice in my head when she said, she would always tell us this, when we say something stupid, she would say, it's better to close your mouth and be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> and so here Peter removes all doubt and the voice of ignorance comes out. Peter says, I got a great, thanks for inviting us. And here's the plan, fellas. You know, I know now, Jesus, that you're not just the Messiah, but you're God himself. And I mean, here's the whole Old Testament, my heroes. Here's Moses and Elijah. But I, Peter, have the plan from here on out. Do y'all see how crazy that was? And preposterous? That's Peter. Open mouth, insert sandal, and chew vigorously, right? Ready, fire, aim. There's Peter. Here's how we're going to make this kingdom. We're going to push this thing all the way through all of Palestine and the world. Okay, here we go. We're going to set up. We're going to live up here. 
and we're going we're gonna to rule from right. We, people got to see this. So we're going to build three houses, one for Moses, one for you, and one for Elijah. All right? I got an idea. <laughs> oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. But God has a different idea, right? How many, how many of you had some ideas and God had different plans for you? Woo, right? So then we see, lastly, the voice of instruction. Thank God for the voice of instruction. Verses 7 and 8, we see the Father's confirmation. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Now notice the command. Hear Him. Not them. Hear Him. And suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. So, this is the Father's confirmation. Notice, first of all, He confirms the identity of His Son. He said, this is my beloved Son. By the way, does that sound familiar to anybody? We go back to chapter 1. Yeah, His baptism, Right? The Holy Spirit comes down, right? Here Jesus receives this, the Holy Spirit and we hear this voice that says, this is my much loved son in whom I am well pleased. It's an identity statement. And now we hear it over again. But he's talking now to the disciples. This is my beloved son. And now what he says is, look, you listen to him. Hear him. Hear what he's got to say to you. Not these other two. And that's my first point under that is, this is the end of the law and the prophets. Do you see it? So I think, what was that cloud that overshadowed them? I think it was the same Shekinah glory that was in the tabernacle that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. The same that, that indwelt the temple. This is the Shekinah glory of Almighty God Himself. It's a kindness through which God veils Himself so that Peter, James, and John are not destroyed in His presence. So literally, Almighty God, God the Father, comes down in this cloud, overshadows both of them. I think He basically looks at Moses and Elijah and tells them to get and back up to, to uh, paradise they go. Right? So they're out of the picture. And then God turns and says to Peter, James, and John, apparently you've forgotten, but let me remind you of who this person is. This is my beloved son. Because he is, you all listen to him. He doesn't listen to you. You listen to him. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. God is not here to listen to you. You're here to listen to him. And look what happens. The cloud's taken up, and who's left? Just Jesus alone. And that's number two, is the centrality of the Messiah. The centrality of the Messiah. We see the passing away, or the prefiguring of the passing away of the Old Testament. That old covenant with God is coming to an end, and it's going to be replaced with Jesus himself. The centrality of Jesus. I love, I love how the scriptures actually say this. Um, in, in verse 8, suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus 
with themselves. It reminds me of the song that Dan Darden, our, our Christian counselor in town, has written called Jesus is All You Need. Right? And I don't know, I can't say this for sure, but I'm, I'm just thinking through this passage. When, when the cloud lifts and it's just Jesus, are the disciples happy or are they a little disappointed that Moses and Elijah have left? I don't know. I don't know. Right? But here's what I do know. Jesus is all you need, Peter, James, John. Who you need is not Elijah and Moses. You're no longer going to relate to me on the basis of the law. Because Jesus is going to be your law keeper. Then we see the son's instruction in the last verses, beginning in verse 11. Um, actually, verse 9. Right? Yes, verse 9 through 13. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Keep this to yourself until I rise from the dead. Then go tell everybody. And isn't that how that thing kind of unfolded? Right? So that's the first thing that we see there in this, in this number one is don't say anything until the resurrection, until I'm resurrected, raised from the dead. Now, the second point is that ignorance prevails. Look at, look at what is said here, or is thought. Um, verse 11, or excuse me, the end of verse 10. So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. What do you, guys, what do you think it means? He's already told you one time, like plainly, for, for the first time. He laid it all out. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be treated terribly. I'm going to actually be executed. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now he says, hey, I know you saw this amazing thing, but keep it to yourself until I rise from the dead. And, and all they heard was, what are, all, what are you thinking? Of? What does he mean, rise from the dead? Is that like an analogy? Is, is, is he being prophetic here in the sense of, it's not really what he's saying. There's got to be some mystery to this because surely he can't die because that's not part of our plan. And was it part of their plan? It was so not a part of their expectation of Messiah that they couldn't accept it. And all they got from that is, what's he mean by rise from the dead? Isn't that sad how ignorant they are? And then they ask about Elijah. So number three is the Elijah prophecy fulfilled. And we see that there, verse 11, they asked him the question. They asked him, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now remember, they've just been given an unequivocal, undeniable demonstration of the true inner identity of Jesus. They got to see the glory of God coming through him. It's like he it's like he took the mask off for him, the mask of humanity off, and said, let me show you who I really am. Whew, and it blew their brain. I mean, it just, wow. Now we know who he is. Wow, he is not just Messiah. He's, that's the glory of God we just saw up there. Right? Yeah, but, but Jesus, how come the scribes saying that Elijah's got to come first? Because who did they just see on the mountain? Elijah, right? They saw him. And look, look at Jesus' answer. They're still questioning, how's this going to work out? Verse 12, And he answered them told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man? 
that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. He's reminding them, yeah, two things here that you don't understand. Elijah is coming. He's going to set everything right. Now, this might be, and I underscore might, this might be a future prophecy uh, before the return of, of King Jesus of Elijah actually returning. That's what some people believe here. Or it might be referring to John himself, which we'll see in a second. Um, either way, he's saying, yeah, he's going to come and he's going to set everything right. But more importantly than that, did y'all not catch in the prophecies how Messiah is treated? And they completely ignore it because they're focused on Elijah. And they don't have that chapter in there. They don't have the ability to receive this truth yet. Verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has also come. That's past tense. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. What's he saying? And he tells us very clearly in Matthew that Jesus was referring to John the Baptist. He said, yeah, he did come. Matter of fact, John the Baptist came and he even dressed like Elijah. Same kind of camel hair outfit and big burly beard, wild man, just like Elijah. That was not by accident. He was a redneck prophet. And Jesus says, yeah, he did come. And they did whatever they wanted in him. What, did it, what ultimately happened to John? He's dead. He's been beheaded by Herod, right? They did what they wanted to him. But he did his job. What was his message? Make straight your ways because the king is coming. Right? He's restoring all things. He's setting everything straight, preparing the way for Messiah. He said, and there it is, and you saw it on the mountain. It's fulfilled. So let me wrap this up with some, just some observations about the transfiguration that might help us in our pondering this week. And that's what I want you to do. Number one is, what, what, was, what was some of the purpose of this transfiguration? And I think we look so hard at the disciples, and that's Mark's point here, that sometimes we forget about Jesus. How did Jesus take that? I think the first thing here I see is just, it, it, it was just an encouragement to Jesus himself. Right? He got to be who he was and finally just let it all out. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to hear his dad's voice again. This is my much-loved son. Hear him. Oh, it's so good to be with the Father again. And for that to be displayed to his disciples. Here's another thought. This proved once and for all who Jesus was. Son of God. That's Mark's point in verse 1. I mean, in this kind of, this put the last nail in that coffin. There's no doubting who Jesus is. Um, and this miracle proves that he's God in the flesh. It was also given to challenge those disciples, to challenge their thinking about how to be right with God, because they're good Jewish boys. How is a good Jewish man right with God? By keeping the law, right? And providing the sacrifices when you don't. That's how you're right with God. And here they're taught to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is my beloved son. You hear him. It's the passing away of the old covenant and the pre-shadowing of the new that would come. 
It's also to show us, I love this, that grace can take us where the law never can. Grace can take us where the law never can. Because when he was transfigured on that mountain, listen, God came down. And when he did, that cloud overshadowed the top of that mountain. That Shekinah glory of God. Listen to me. That glory of God hadn't been seen in Israel. Listen to this. For over 600 years, the glory of God had been absent. And now it was back. Can you imagine what joy there must have been? And it was all centered around Jesus. Because you see, the law would never allow Moses or Elijah, Peter... James or John to enter God's glory. That's going to be a big problem, right? But when they found themselves in the presence of Jesus, they experienced his power and the glory of his kingdom that he was bringing. What a beautiful truth. Grace alone can open the door for the things of God. Do you believe that today? Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Moses and Elijah and the law and the prophets ever said or wrote. That's why you have the law and the prophets and then Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. He brings, he ushers the presence of God into our very lives. So I know I've said a lot about, uh, give me a lot of information here. So what do I want you to do with it? Well, first of all, if you're, if you're outside of Christ, if you're outside of faith, your faith isn't vibrant and alive and real, come to Jesus today. He is the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. Come to Him in repentance and faith. Maybe you need to thank God for those mountaintop experiences. This would be a good time to do that. Maybe you want to seek His face and become a person after God's own heart. That's why this old-fashioned altar is always open. If God has encouraged your heart and you want to thank Him, now is the time. Because one day, brothers and sisters, we're going to see him just like that. That wasn't just for those three. Can you imagine the day we get to stand before Jesus himself at the right hand of the Father? And yeah, glory is the right word, ma'am. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. We're not going to see him like he was. We're going to see him like he is. Truly human but truly God and, and, uh, and his true identity is going to shine forth. And we're going to see something that our minds may not even be able to receive. And on that day, don't pull a Peter and say something stupid. Just enjoy his presence. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. And as I do, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you're here without Jesus, come. Come and repent of your sins and put your faith in Him. Follow Him. You need to thank Him. Come. Well, we're going to sing together as we leave today. And as we do, I want you to think about what we're singing. I want you to think about what we've heard. Has Jesus showed up in power in your life? And have we been changed? What ideas do we have about Jesus <laughs> that are so ensconced that we're missing who he really is, like these disciples did. And in an effort to usher in the Advent season, 
After prayer, we will close with this song, which is one of our favorites for Christmas time. Oh, come all you unfaithful. And aren't you glad when we're unfaithful, he's faithful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We pray that your word will find space and grace in our hearts, that, that you might be honored and glorified for who you are. In Jesus' name.